Newsweek presents The Debate with Andrew Tolman. Everything 100% of the time, 24 hours a day is a negotiation. Rakeem Brooks. This is a common good that we are talking about. Ellis Hennigan. None of us have fallen for the notion that this is conservative. And Jeff Charles. That distracts us from actually rolling up our sleeves. The Debate starts now. So I was looking around, as I normally do, for some interesting articles that present perspectives that I hadn't really thought or like have a catchy line. And there was this one recently about, you know, America's not doing as bad as we necessarily think. And that itself could uh, fill all of our time on the debate. But there was one line in particular that I was intrigued by, particularly, especially given our company, which is there's only Trump and no Trumpism. So as you all know, one of the sort of debates that we've been having as of late in the country is like, is Trump a a symptom, a feature of something in our society? When he goes, will it somehow still live on through someone else? And I have to say that I was really someone who's been hesitant, uh, if not reluctant, to see President Trump prosecuted, in part because I thought that this was a virus that we had to kill by electoral forces, right, that In fact, you had to beat back this coalition of like Neo John Birchers who have uh, taken over the Republican Party and that the only way to successfully do that again was by voting him down at the ballot, as has happened several times. But this um, author basically has said, if you look at what's happening in the Republican primaries and you see all of the Trump like kind of characters who are trying to come along and seize um, his majorities, they don't seem capable of doing it. In fact, Um, The president seems to have a sort of ceiling on his level of support, and those people will dissipate if, in fact, he loses. That's the argument that they're making. So I was curious to get a response from you all. Like, is it just Trump? Have we just sort of had a bad round, you know, bad, bad night out and America's going to come back from this? Or is there something still deeper in our society that we're wrestling with that will live on whether or not he's defeated in the Republican primaries or, God forbid, in the general election? Well, first of all, how dare you sell optimism? I, I mean, honestly, <laughs> I'm the you. only one. How on this that dare optimism. you? <laughs> so uh, I, I, it's an interesting question, right? Um, to what degree does Trump represent, you know, long enduring strains, groups, currents in the American culture? And to what degree is Trump just a fascinating and captivating character, right? Is he a personality or is he uh, an idea or a movement? And it's hard to separate the two. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you ask his supporters, um, they will tend to talk about him more as being a movement or, you know, he, he speaks like the common man, right? The sort of um, common person sentiment is uh, very much a, a factor for him. But of course, Many threads and conservatives have been frustrated because he doesn't represent conservatism. He doesn't really represent liberalism. He doesn't represent moderatism. You know, it's it's hard to know. Nativism. Sure. Maybe. Yes. You know, but he's not an isolationist by any stretch, nor is he an interventionist. So I don't know. I tend to lean more toward the side that thinks of uh, former President Trump as a persona. And so to the degree that he has succeeded, it's largely because of the things that make him unique. And other people who might be unique, but in different ways might have a chance to capture the public the way he has. But people who try to just do the art of the deal with, you know, DeSantis italics, (laughs) you know, that's that's not really going to work because Trump is just Trump. And that's what's interesting, I think, for a lot of people about him is that he's so uniquely him. 
You know, I think, you know, for people who don't like Trump, I've got some bad news for you. Um, Trumpism, it, it ain't going away anytime soon, even if he does, because I think what people don't realize is that Trumpism isn't really about Trump. Trumpism started before Trump came onto the scene. He was just a symptom of that. He swept onto the stage and he once he did, he had a populist message to a crowd that was already becoming more and more populist. When he came on the scene, he magnified that by a million and bam, now everybody's a populist on the right. And I'm exaggerating, of course, not everybody on the right is a populist. But I think that now what you're going to see is this Trumpian populism take a different form, hence Ron DeSantis. Now, I don't believe he'll win the nomination unless Trump gets thrown in jail, but people like him are going to continue to carry that torch. They, they'll have that more pugilistic attitude towards the elites, towards the, the establishment media and the establishment Republican Party. So I think that it's going to continue. It's just going to take a different form for better or for worse. I think that's what's going to happen. Yeah, it's a great question. It's a really good question. And one one I, too, have kind of uh, the tide has gone in and out for me on it. Let me make a couple of observations. One is that Trump is better at it than anybody else ever. Right. I I mean, yes, there are others who uh, who have taken that posture, but none of them have the communication skills, the Mm -hmm. charisma, the just the the celebrity, which which was an important part of, of, of Trump's rise. That he does. And so so certainly DeSantis has reminded us and, and I bow to Andrew and his expertise as a Florida resident on uh, pluses and minuses of DeSantis. But but he ain't got what Trump's got. Right. Um, at the same time, it's a big country. And the traditional notion of what the Republican Party was about is dead. Right. There's no audience for that anymore, it seems. Um, the principal conservative. Yeah, the, the principled conservatism that, you know, most American conservatives thought meant it has has no real, real powerful constituency anymore. And, and depending on where you go, you know, there are places it's a big, diverse country. And so in the in the southern states of my birth, um, man, that's that's running the joint these days in, in, in some parts of uh even in the industrial Midwest and in the middle parts of the country, that 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 populism is speaking to something that even if it's pressed on by a by a cult leader has a has a real audience. It doesn't turn out that it's a majority audience of America. I don't think it probably tops out in the high 30s, or low 40s. But uh, Trump could have a heart attack tomorrow and it would uh, it would march on, I'm afraid. Yeah, interesting. You know, but we, we have examples from the past that I don't feel greatly skilled at articulating, but I think of people that were you know big leaders of populist movements and got crowds and worked people up and you know they weren't necessarily ideologically aligned with what trump is today um i think we've kind of always had characters in our politics or in the business world or in celebrity that capture the imagination and i I don't know that trump is i mean he's certainly as you said ellis the the most vivid example currently but uh, you know some of these I don't know whether it's going back to religious movements in the past or some of the demagoguery type political uh, movements in the past, that willingness of people to catch on to somebody that they think represents their best interests and their ideals and gets them excited. That's not new. It's not even particularly American. We've seen that in other countries, certainly many times before, right? For good and bad, both. 
I think it's also worth noting, too, is that the populist, the move for populism is not just on the right. It's on the left, too. I mean, Bernie Sanders captured the imagination of millions of Americans, a lot of whom think that he was screwed uh, you know, out of getting his nomination. A lot of whom ended up voting for, guess what, Donald Trump. I mean, you have Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who's on the scene now, too, who is really riding this populist wave. So I think that this is more of an American trend more than just a right wing Trumpian trend. Yeah. yeah. But that's one of the questions I was going to ask you all, because I I think we've uh, Andrew loved this. You know, we've gotten a little confused about terms and what Trumpianism is. I mean, my my sense has been that it's not just populism, because almost every American political movement ends up being populist to some extent, which is like you require a large number of people to be bought into what it is you're trying to do. And, we're, you know, the every man conversation that almost every candidate tries to have or relate to, but that there's distinctive elements of Trumpianism, which is kind of, I mean, that fascist call to the past, the past was better, we need a kind of singular figure who's going to help inaugurate a renewal of that, this push towards what we see as increasingly public violence of one kind or another, and that can be politically motivated to secure outcomes. I mean, how are you all defining it? Because those elements feel distinctive to me, not that Trump created them, but that he's created a vessel for them to be unleashed publicly and acknowledged and in some ways supported even tacitly. And so I'm I'm curious, you know, is, is there really another figure who can hold that up in the way that he does or, you know, I'm, I'm, that's what I'm struggling with. Well, one of the, yeah, one so- of the in, in the article uh, that I that I don't know, caught my attention was uh, this notion that somehow or other in the past, and the, the, the author was not advocating this, but that people have this idea that somehow in the past, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago, everybody was smart and civil and <laughs> kind and charitable and democracy was a well-oiled machine. Right. And there were, you know, very rarely heavy points of friction. And of course, this, um, idyllic norm has never ever existed and so i think when we look at the the kind of fracture that people get worked up about today i look at political cartoons from the you know late 1700s and i think wow we're really quite a bit nicer (laughs) you know than they were and so that that notion that the the all of democracy is falling apart I think we think that about everything. Every generation feels like everything's falling apart, but look back and it was really a mess before too, you know, no, and so I, I hear that. It just looks let, like this. Let me just give you a quick example. Cause I just got back from London. And so I learned the origin of the term um, toe the party line. And mm. apparently it was that uh, you stood up against the line and you could basically wave your sword or saber at the other side, as long as you didn't cross the line, in which case you were inviting a duel effectively in a fight to the death. So I kind of would say if today Parliament returned to that practice, it had, in fact, been a regression in society. Right. Like the fact that there were terrible things that went on in the past and, you know, uh, various riots and raids and so forth does not mean that if we sort of gone 40 or 50 years without that, that we should expect it to flare up again at one moment or another. I do think we've. um January 6th was crossing the Rubicon in some way. We did something that was actually previously unimaginable to us. And now the question is whether or not that Pandora's box, even if it would have happened in the Washington administration, right? We had closed it for a long time, decided we didn't quite want to conduct ourselves that way. And now suddenly it's back on the table as a way of contesting political outcomes. 
Yeah, I, listen, I think you're right. It, it, it's absolutely true. We have had eruptions of this historically in the past, Andrew. But um, I mean, listen, things things are definitely rougher now than they've been in, in, in most of our lifetimes or our our recent historical memories. Let me suggest what I think is fueling it, if, if I might. And it's real and it's not going to go away no matter what happens with Trump. There are a, a significant swath of Americans who look at their own lives and their own opportunities and feel very despondent, right? If you were a non-college uh, person living out in the middle of America somewhere, you are correct if you feel like your economic opportunities have shrunken and that the economy doesn't need your skills in the same way that it once did, or that your that your children have a narrower opportunities than you did. Uh, they're not making that up. I mean, that isn't that is an absolute reality in the lives of millions of Americans. And, and I think when you when you have the kind of technological and social change that we've had in, in recent years in this country, you do create a, a lot of people who get uh, disenfranchised as a result. And it, it is natural that those folks are going to be looking for some charismatic figure that's going to going to give them an answer, going to tell them it's not their fault, going to say, if only we can rise up against these elites, we're all going to do better. Um, and I don't think that goes away when Trump goes away. You're right. And, but I think, Ellis, the reason why is because that problem is still going to persist. I mean, what you said is actually rooted in, in reality. I mean, if you look in, in a lot of black neighborhoods, they're being screwed by their government. I mean, I, I've got a really good friend, a Texan. He's a white redneck. And he says the average black working class black person and white redneck have a way more in common than they do differences. But yet we still we see this whole racial divide. And I think that the re reality is that once America wakes up to the fact that it really is the elites, the ruling class screwing everybody, that's when we're going to start seeing some interesting times, my friend, because I think that we're just seeing the beginning of that. And I do think that there is a sense that a lot of people have been screwed by the government. And I think that, again, I think it's correct. And so it'll be interesting to see where that goes. It's a little scary, but at the same time, it, it'll be very interesting to see what comes up. Yeah. Can I can I jump in with one just quick addendum? I don't think it's the government that's doing it. I think it's the economy that's doing it. The government didn't do or didn't make us become technological or didn't make manufacturing decline or make farming impossible to make a living. Or I mean, isn't that just isn't that kind of the march of technology? I think that may be part of it. But when you're talking, especially when you're talking about farming, all these regulations that are put on by the government to make it harder to, to earn a living farming. I mean, we see a lot of this, even in the cattle industry, a lot of these regulations making it hard so that people are going out of out of business. I mean, a lot of it can be traced back to the government. I'm not saying it's all the government. Definitely not. But I think in general, the government is doing a lot more harm than a lot of people suspect. Yeah. You know what I'm, I'm struggling with a little bit? If It sort of feels like I buy the argument that there was a kind of pre-Trump populist movement moving throughout the country for a variety of reasons, technological change, economic change, constant crisis in the country. Uh, but it almost feels like Trump unites a few different strands of our history. Like, it's not just that that's happening. It's that there's a concern about having had the first black president in the country and the gradual demographic change in the country and what that means, which is related to some of the economic circumstances, but perhaps dis distinct, um, that he brings to the fore a kind of pugilistic, um, unaccountable, 
uh, presidency that we never quite expected before so that the rules and the norms and things we took for granted don't really matter so much anymore. And I know that populism always has that air of like Jacksonian. We just imagine everybody running into the White House with their dirty boots and stepping on everything. And like, we got to bring in a big block of cheese to feed everybody because, you know, that's all we can afford that feeds, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people. But it, if if all that pre-existed and Trump is just kind of the, the mantle holder for the moment, it makes some sense to me. But I don't know, as is, is terrible as things is whatever I felt about the Tea Party. I feel very differently about the constellation of groups and folks that Trump seems to have gotten on the same page. Like the religious right doesn't care about anything that he does as long as he puts judges on the court with which they agree. That feels a little different. I mean, I'm not saying that they were holding a high moral place in my heart, but they seem to at least articulate certain things. Like when Trump now says, as he did in, in, in his debates early on, right? Well, yeah, obviously the pregnant woman should be prosecuted if she has an abortion and the whole abortion movement, I mean, a right to life movement is like, oh my God, we don't say that. And now just a few years later, they're like, and we have arrived at exactly that policy position <laughs> that Donald Trump advocated for. Is this not some of his doing? Well, I think one of the one of the strains that concerns me and you, you kind of hit on this, I, I think it was you working, we said about, you know, that um, maybe it was uh, Ellis, the, the sort of um, principled conservatism, you know, doesn't really exist anymore. Uh, well, I, I would say we're in hiding, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> that we don't come exist. Back, please you know? come back. Just, we need you. We're just, you know, we're not experiencing the same level of thriving at the moment that we would prefer. Um, but that really concerns me because. One of the things that I see uh, another way to describe populism uh, might be anti-intellectualism or, you know, uh, anti-elitism or it's just kind of like I don't need uh, anybody telling me what's right or what's wrong. I just know what's right. Well, we're trying to provide evidence and reason and we're trying to secure the opinions of experts and ask them based on their subject matter what they really know. And. I want that, you know, I want a principled response to things where this belief and this belief and this belief all make sense according to a set of undergirding principles that holds it all together. Of course, Trump does not represent that at all. And that's what's frustrating to people who are, you know, again, more principled conservatives. And I have to imagine uh, principled liberals find it frustrating, too, because on the left, you have so many elements of this just frustration and anger and we don't want to be reasoned with. We would just want to shout our view, which is on the right, too. And I, I see I see Trump has capitalized if very effectively on that. I don't see that anybody on the left has capitalized on that at the moment. Bernie Sanders aside, uh, that's maybe an opportunity for somebody on the left to do it. But that's the that's the problem I see is the clash, longstanding clash in this country between people who want to be thoughtful and reason and argue and nuanced and listen to their the opinions of others. Whereas Trump's view is, if you disagree with me, you're an imbecile and you're anti-American. And that is exactly not what America is supposed to be. Yeah, but it seems like that was happening before, though, Andrew. Because right? I remember, I mean, you would watch like Bill O'Reilly and, and, you know, and others on the left, yeah. and Ed Schultz, and they'd, they'd all say that stuff to each other. I mean, I mean, and, and like you said, you brought up history. It used to be worse. I mean, our lawmakers used to be beating each other with canes. I actually wouldn't mind seeing some of that coming back. Oh, no, I'm just kidding. But, uh, you know, I'm just saying I'm just saying like this stuff has always existed. But I think you're right in that Trump did manage to capitalize on that expertly, perfectly. And so I think that this is just, you know, it's almost like the reckoning is coming. The chickens are coming home to roost, basically. 
Yeah, well, something we'll see play out, obviously, in the coming months as we work our way through the primaries and see to what extent things look Trumpian, even if Trump is gone. I just, um, I don't know, I have some some sense that there's something distinctive about what he's done that, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with the Trump-Bernie Sanders comparison, not because I know people, uh, don't know that people switch, but like, I don't know, the populism from like William Jennings Bryant all the way to the present doesn't seem to me to include Donald Trump, but maybe I'm missing something. you would like to be a part of the debate, email us. The debate at Newsweek.com. After being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. It's like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling, and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.